Turn, please, to Philippians in chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2, I want to read verses 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. Upon finding that, uh, please pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, now we come to your word and pray that you would enable us to hear it, to receive it in all of its fullness. Father, I pray that you captivate us by this word and capture uh, the very essence of our hearts and fill us with the very spirit of Christ. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Philippians 2 verse 1. So, if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves, that each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, I'm taking up this particular passage uh, today, not so much because it's Easter Sunday, because the resurrection isn't explicitly mentioned here, but because I've been in Philippians and this is where we are. Uh, there are times when I take up a text for Easter Sunday that's specifically about the resurrection, but this one was so Christ-centered that I figured we could just stay there and be safe. But... The resurrection of Jesus is assumed in this passage between verses 8 and 9. Thanks for looking there as you all bow down, but it's not there. It's assumed there. And the reason that it's, it's assumed there is because we move from the crucifixion of Jesus, his death, to his exaltation, that is, his ascension. And in the middle of all that is the resurrection because we do believe in the resurrection of Jesus as we sang earlier. We believe it. We believe that Jesus rose bodily from the dead that he was crucified, that when he died, he died, and when he died, he died for us. That is to say, he didn't die for himself, he himself died, but he didn't die for his own sins, for he had none, but our sins were laid upon him, and thus he died our death. And because he had no sin in himself, for which he had to pay, once he had satisfied the wrath of God for us once he had paid our penalty then he was free to go and thus he rose from the dead the good news is of course that when he died believers in him died and when he rose those who believe in him rose as well and thus the life that he rose to this newness of life we rise to as well thus we do believe in the resurrection of Jesus it's crucial it's essential if it hadn't happened none of this passage would be helpful to us at all because none of it would be true. But because it occurred, this passage we trust is true. So I'm here providentially in this particular passage uh, because it is 
Christ-centered. It's about Christ. And I want us to consider that. But I don't want us to miss the context. I don't want us to miss why it is that Paul speaks of Christ this way right here. As you're reading through the scripture, it's always helpful to ask that question. Why is Paul or Matthew or Ezekiel, whomever it is, why are they saying this right now in this particular part of this passage? Why are they talking about this? Why is he talking about Christ in this way right now? It's because Christ makes his point. Because the point of Paul here begins all the way back in verse 27 of chapter 1, where Paul writes, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. He's saying, I want you to live in such a way that your life shows the worth, shows the value of Christ. You know, if you stay with a person long enough, you can, you, you can learn, you can discern by their life what they value. And Paul is saying, I want by your life, by the way that you live, by your citizenship is the literal translation, by your, the way that you live in this place, I want people to understand, to be able to see what you value, what's of great worth to you. And what I want them to see is of great worth to you is the gospel of Christ. That's what they should be seeing. And, and he's talking to them corporately, this whole group, this whole company of people. So amongst you, He's saying, I want them to be able to see that what you value is the gospel of Christ. Because the valuing the gospel of Christ is to the glory of God. Because the gospel is the glory of God in the face of Christ. When we show that we value the gospel, people think about Jesus. And when people are thinking about Jesus, that's glorifying not to us, but to him. And so he says, I want people to be able to see what you value, what's worth a great deal to you, what's worth everything to you, is the gospel. And as a community, he says, here's how you do that. You'll notice then as you read along a little bit farther down in this verse, he says, so that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. He said, now the way that you show the worth of the gospel is you stand firm. And you stand firm in one spirit, the very Holy Spirit who has joined you together with God and with each other. You stand firm in one spirit and you strive together. You contend for the gospel. You strive together with one mind. All of you valuing the gospel. You know it's worth. So you strive together with one mind, not showing your opponents at all any fear because you're not afraid of them. Because as we mentioned a couple of weeks ago, all they can do is kill you. They cannot harm your soul. And so you needn't be afraid of them. And so you can stand together. You can strive together. One spirit, one mind, not being afraid. So now Paul comes in his thinking to say, now, how can I explain to them the kind of attitude, the kind of understanding of life, the kind of mind this group of people must have? And so he goes to Christ. He says, all right, I know. Have the mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. That's it. And you see, that, that's really the way that Christians should always think, always respond, because Christianity is Christ. Everything about the faith deals with Christ. You know the little story. I've shared this with you before, but it's a helpful illustration. Sunday school class, Sunday school teacher, she says to her little class of fourth graders, what's gray has a long tail, is fluffy, stores acorns in the winter, and climbs trees. The boy raises his hand, and he said, 
you know, it sounds like a squirrel, but I'm in Sunday school, so you must want me to say Jesus. <laughs> That's an insightful little boy, because you see, the answer to all of these issues for us really is Jesus. How are we to live? Well, we're to have the mind of Christ. That's the attitude that we're going to have, that we should have. You know, if people ask me, why do I believe that the Bible is the word of God? My answer really ultimately is because Jesus did. Jesus understood the Old Testament as he treated it, as he lived it, as he understood it to be the very word of God. And so if Jesus said this is the word of God, I take it on his authority that it's the word of God because Jesus believed that. And then he so commissioned his apostles to write more that I trust their writing as well. Why, why do we believe that Jesus is the only way of salvation? Because Jesus believed that. He taught that. And we take it on his authority, not on our own, really. He believed that. Uh, how should we live? We should live the way Jesus commands us to live, how he taught us to live. That's how, because it's Jesus, and he is our faith. Paul said, for me to live is Christ. That's what he meant. That all the answers to all of his questions really were summed up in the person of Christ. And so now Paul says, how are we to live? How can we, how can we live worthy of the gospel? He says, have the mind of Christ. Now, it's important for us to understand, since Christ is the center of everything, that when each generation, and each generation does, when each generation goes on what they call a quest for the historical Jesus, in one sense, that's a, oops, excuse me, that's a, you're awake, that's a very good thing, this quest for the historical Jesus. Because in so questing, so searching, so seeking, for Jesus, the historical Jesus, we're saying who he was and who he is matters. What we don't want is a faith in a myth, a mythological figure, because that really doesn't help us. So we need to know the historical Jesus. Last Sunday I shared in this service, anyway, I think, uh, the story of Joseph Tan, and I'll share it again because some of you may have been in first and didn't hear it because I didn't share it in first because... Sometimes I preach a little different sermons. But depends on who's there, I think. I don't think it's my faulty memory. I think uh, it's because of who's there. God just directs me differently. At least that's how I sleep at night. But, um, <laughs> but Joseph Tan was a pastor in Romania, is a pastor in Romania still. But he began his work when Romania was under communist rule. And he'd become a Christian, and he uh, said that uh, he wanted to pastor a church. He wanted to be an evangelist. He wanted to be a pastor. And so uh, he went to theological school. He went to what their version of seminary was. But he went to what you and I would refer to probably as a liberal seminary, a seminary that did not hold to the infallibility of Scripture uh, nor the historicity of Christ as revealed by the New Testament. And uh, as he began to read various theological books which were uh, of a liberal persuasion, uh, he left the seminary. And his professor came to him and said, why are you leaving? And he said, I'm leaving because I know that for me to be a Christian in Romania today means that I'm most likely to be persecuted and very likely to be killed, and I will not die for a myth. And you see, when we look for the historical Jesus, that's good. Because who he is and what he did means everything. Now, the difficulty with such quests, however, are generally uh, that they do not believe 
that what the New Testament teaches about Jesus is sufficient for us to know who the true historical Jesus is. And thus they take other quests and other, uh, other avenues of research to try to find the real historical Jesus, assuming what we have in the Gospels isn't true, which is a poor assumption. Because you have to wonder why it is that God would go to all the trouble to send Jesus in the first place in fulfillment of all, what he had already, by the time of Jesus, written down, and then would cease to write. But he didn't cease to write. He gave to us the New Testament documents, which is sufficient and all we need to know about Christ. Thus, all we need to know for the context of living out our faith. Now, it may be that the reason each generation has a quest for the historical Jesus that is a quest apart from the New Testament documents is simply one more proof that the Bible is true. Because the scripture tells us that we will resist the truth as God reveals it and we will want to discover it all on our own and make it up all on our own. You remember in the Garden of Eden in chapter 3 of Genesis where Satan, the evil one, comes to Eve and he says, surely God did not say. And you see, there's always been a hard-heartedness towards God's revelation. We don't want to receive his revelation his way. But he says, no, you must. And here it is. And he gives it to us in the New Testament. And he gives it to us in the Bible. He gives it to us even in the person, most especially in the person of Christ. Because when the apostle says, have this mind in you that was also in Christ Jesus, he's saying that because the very mind of Christ is the very heart of God. Jesus came to reveal the Father. He came to reveal God to us. In fact, as John writes in his gospel, he writes this. Turn to John chapter 1, verse 14. John 1, 14. Uh, the apostle John writes this about Jesus. He says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. He says he's the Word of God. That is, he communicates God to us. He's the Word. Words are, are important, even necessary, to communicate to us what's on the inside. When Karen and I teach uh, this before you say I do class and we're on the communication part, uh, she often uh, speaks to them, well, mostly to the guys, about communication. And she says words are important. And she illustrates it like this. She says when... Husbands and wives communicate. It's supposed to be like this. The wife talks and the husband talks. And she and he. But normally, she says, I don't know where she gets this. Normally, she says, it goes something like this. <laughs> Words, you see, are necessary to communicate. And as the scripture is, the apostle says, that he is the word in part he's saying this is the very communication from God listen to him he'll teach you he'll tell you he'll reveal to you that which you cannot see he revealed to you God notice chapter 1 verse 18 John writes no one has ever seen God then he goes on to say the only God that is this word the only God who is at the father's side he has made him known that is 
Jesus has come to narrate God to us, to tell us about God. Some of you know the, the word exegesis. When you study the Bible, we exegete. That means we're trying to find out what's really true in the text. And so we do our exegesis. We do our study of that passage because it reveals to us the truth. And so Jesus exegetes uh, the Father. He's the one who shows us, who reveals to us, who tells us uh, who the Father is. In fact, that is so true that, that, that Jesus himself will be quoted by John in chapter 5, John chapter 5 and verse 19, like this. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He's saying, listen, everything I do, I'm doing because I've seen and I see the Father doing it. So if you see me do it, you can bank on the fact that God is doing it. Thus, he's the word. He comes to narrate, to tell us the truth about God. Then in John chapter 8 and verse um, 28, we read this. So Jesus said to them, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That is to say, if you hear me speak, you can rest assured that you're hearing God speak because I only say the things I hear him say. And if you see me doing something, you can rest assured that's what God is doing because I only do the things that God does. Therefore, Jesus can say in John chapter 14, in response to a question of Philip, show us the Father, Jesus says, if you've seen me, You've seen the Father. I'm the Word. I've come to exegete Him, to reveal Him. You've heard me speak, therefore you've heard the Father speak. You've seen me do things, therefore you've seen Him do things, because I've come to reveal Him. In fact, Jesus is very explicit in a previous verse 6, where He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He says, I am the truth. That is, I'm reliable. I'm trustworthy. Whatever you see in me is true about God. You can take it to the bank. You can rest assured that that's the case. It's an interesting exchange between Jesus and Pilate that John records in chapter 18, beginning with verse 33. I read this the other night at our service on Thursday evening. But it's very telling. John 18, verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered. Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, So you're a king? Jesus answered, You say that I am a king? For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. For everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. Pilate said to him, What is truth? Now you'll notice that Pilate didn't wait around for Jesus to answer that. We don't know quite why. could be that perhaps Pilate didn't think there was an answer to the question. It was just rhetorical. He didn't think there was anything so reliable that it could be called truth especially when it dealt with the kingdom of God. It could be that since Pilate wasn't one person of the truth, he really didn't care to listen anyway. We don't know quite why. 
But Jesus did answer this question. He answered it on the cross. That is truth. The cross is truth. The cross reveals God to us. It's reliable. It's trustworthy. And so you see, when Paul says, I want you to have this mind of Christ, he's saying, there's one trustworthy person to whom we can go who understands the very heart of God. And that's what you need if you're going to be able to live worthy of the gospel. And so he comes to Jesus and he begins to share with us and to lay out for us the truth. And he goes then directly to the cross. Notice what he says in verse 6. He says, who, that is Jesus, although he was in the form of God, that's the strongest way possible for Paul to say Jesus is God, deity. In the form he carried the very existence of God within him, the very form of God. Thus, this Son of God, this one Christ Jesus, is eternal. That is to say, he existed before the creation of the world. In fact, before the creation of the world we know, the scripture tells us that God chose believers, us, in him, in Christ. And so even before anything was ever made, this agreement between father and son to save sinners was made. And Jesus agreed then that these ones who would believe in him would be in him. These ones the father had chosen, had chosen would be in him. And then he comes. Notice who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Jesus had every right to grasp all of the honor, all of the dignity, all of the glory of God. But he didn't. In the very heart of God is the nature to be self sacrificing in love for those in need. The very heart of God. Though he existed in the form of God, though he was God, and he could have regarded equality with God something to be grasped, he didn't. So he could empty himself. So he could make himself nothing. Because in order to do what he needed to do, he had to become this servant. So he became a servant, a real servant, not a fake servant, servant, but a real servant. Made himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being just like a man, in the very form of a human being, the likeness of men. He didn't stop being deity, but he took on that which he wasn't prior to that moment. He became God, flesh. God in flesh. God Man, And we see this, what the theologians call the humiliation of Christ throughout the course of his life. We see it in the incarnation. We see it at the birth of Christ. We see the Lord of glory, independent, powerful, all-knowing, becoming as a baby, utterly dependent. He had to be taken care of. Else, unthinkable, he would die, being utterly independent and powerful, to being dependent, all-knowing, to a child, a baby, 
didn't know anything at that moment in time. You get the impression that artists knew that and so in the various periods of art world would put halos over the baby Jesus just to say, yeah, he looks like just a guy, but just a baby, but there's more to him than meets the eye. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see as we sing at Christmas time. Veiled incarnate deity, pleased as man with men to dwell. Jesus, our Emmanuel. We see this humiliation at his baptism. The perfect Lord of glory. Identifying himself with sinners as he's baptized into a baptism of repentance, which he didn't need, but yet he identified. And his dependence upon the Holy Spirit is evidence as the Spirit comes upon him like a dove. We see it as we saw it the other night, Thursday night, we read John chapter 13, verses 1 and following about Jesus washing the feet of his disciples. And we can see the very humiliation of Jesus played out right in that scene as he takes off his dignity, as he takes off his outer garments, as he takes off that which identified him as their teacher. And he takes all of this off. And he lays it aside and he makes himself nothing, taking the very form of a servant as he puts the towel around his waist. And it's more than just a form because he actually becomes their servant and he washes their feet. And we see it at the cross. As death comes to Jesus, death can be humiliating to all of us as we become weaker and more dependent upon all those around us and we can lose faculties and we can lose understanding and it can affect us in every way and weaken us. But with Jesus, this humiliation of death was even greater because, you see, his was a death on a cross. And when Paul would write death on a cross, it meant more to them than to us probably because crosses were despised. And anyone who would die on a cross would be a despised one. We, we make them gold and put them on our ears and around our necks and that's fine. But for them, a cross was a despicable thing. And so when Jesus was dying a death on a cross, the humiliation, humiliation couldn't have been greater because it wasn't simply that he had no value to society at that point in time, but in the eyes of society he had negative value. Society would be better off with him gone. That was their verdict. And so he was utterly humiliated as the Lord of glory and now less than valuable, less than nothing as a human being. But you see, that reveals to us God. That's truth. What's the truth? The truth is that God is holy. That God is holy. And that he cannot simply sweep our sin under the mat. And if sinners are going to be accepted by him, then that sin must be paid. And God is love. A love that's really unfathomable. Romans chapter 5 says that God demonstrates his own love for us in this. And it's very deliberate. His own love for us in this. Because this love is so different than any love we can imagine. It's self-sacrificing for enemies. And so he says, his own love for this. It might be that you might die for a good man or for a righteous man. But he dares to die for those who are against him. For it was while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. That's his kind of love. 
If you can walk in your mind through this kind of self-sacrificing humiliation, love of Jesus. And it was because he was God that he did this. His godness, if you will, his deity, because this in him was love, it caused him not to grasp a hold of all of his rights, but to free them for this time that he might love, that he might save. Now the question then before us is, well, is this trustworthy? Is this really truth? Can we really bank on this? Is this mind of Christ really the attitude of God, really the mind of God? Has he really revealed God to us? And the answer is, according to Paul, yes. Because look what God did in response to what Jesus did. Verse 9. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says, all that my son, the Father would say, has done is to my glory. That is, it reveals me, it reflects me, it pleases me. So much so that the proof of that is that I've given him a name that is above every name, the name Lord. You see, when God bestows the name Lord on Jesus, he's restoring to him his dignity, his honor, his glory, that which he didn't grasp while he was on earth, but this now is given to him by the Father. And when he gives him this name Lord, he's saying he's God. Notice Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8. God says, I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. He's saying, the Lord, Lord, that's my name. I don't give my glory, my name, to anyone else. But he gives it to Jesus. What does that tell us about Jesus? Then, in Isaiah chapter 45, in verse 22, God says, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. To me, to God. But now he's saying, I'm giving Jesus my name, Lord, and that at this name, at him, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. In heaven, on earth, and under the earth, that pretty much covers it. We'll confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, that isn't a statement of what we would call universalism. That it doesn't mean that a day will come when everyone will confess faith in Jesus as Lord and be saved. This is a statement of fact, a statement of vindication that everyone will make. It's simply vindicating that Jesus Christ is the Lord. This isn't faith that saves. This is vindication of Christ that, yes, he is the Lord. And some will make that confession to their eternal life. And some will make that confession to their eternal hell. But all will make it because it's the truth. Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory, it will reflect the glory of God the Father. Now, 
back to Paul's point. We are to have the same mind as Jesus. That is, we are to love as he loved. Self-sacrificing humility to love. Now when I think of that, I realize I'm sunk. I'm sunk in two areas. My past life and my present life. And my future life, though I shudder to think it. My past life in a sense, and present life, because I see that I've simply not done that. I simply haven't loved as Christ has loved. I've given it a shot from time to time, but I haven't really succeeded. I, I, don't, I would not say my love is self-sacrificing. I look at the humiliation of Christ for those he loves. I look at the self-sacrifice of Christ, not grasping that which was rightfully his, really rightfully his, his honor, his due, that he didn't grasp it, and yet still he loved and I realize if that's the mind of Christ, if that's the heart of God, if that's what pleases God, if that's what glorifies God, I haven't done that. Thus, I'm worthy, therefore, of the wrath of God, the punishment of God. He would be just, righteous, holy, moral, to so inflict me with his wrath. And I'm sung too. Because though I know it to be true and I know that's how I should live still, I find loving as Christ has loved. You know, it's always amazing to me. People read the Sermon on the Mount and say, that's a great example from Christ as to how we're to live. And I read the Sermon on the Mount and I say, I'm sunk if that's an example of how I'm to live in and of myself. That kind of just example doesn't help me. It just points out my failure and my inability and my sin. So I'm sunk, you see, but the good news of the gospel is that what I need to be unsunk is given in Christ. Because, you see, what I need in the midst of that is two things. I need a Savior and a Lord. I need a Savior who will say, yes, you haven't had my mind. You haven't loved as I have loved. You haven't pleased the Father as he deserves, as you should. And thus, yes, you are guilty, but that cross again, the love of Christ again, I've taken it. Trust me. I'm truth. I'm reliable. You can bank on it. Place all of your hope, not in yourself, but in me. And not only that, He's not simply, simply, he's not only Savior, but he's Lord. That is, he can come and move and change me. It's a great passage, Ephesians in chapter 3, in verse 14. Paul begins to pray. Ephesians three fourteen. For this reason, he says, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in earth in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Notice what Paul's praying. He's praying 
that the Spirit of God would strengthen them in their inner being. And the way that this strength comes is that Christ dwells in our hearts by faith. And you might say, well, why is he praying that? Since as Christians, we know Christ dwells in us. He's praying that because he's not simply just praying about the, 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 the initial indwelling of the Spirit. But he uses a little word for dwell there that means move in. Permanent dwelling. Not just renting, owning. You're going to be there for the long haul. And you know what you do. Most of you probably, well, if you're married, you've done this. When you move into a new place, you remodel. You repaint. Because you want this place to reflect you. You want this place to be comfortable for you. And so you make it a place that's comfortable for you. People come into your place and go, oh yeah, Bill lives here. I just tripped over a book on my way in. Uh, whatever, make it comfortable for you. And when Paul says, I'm praying that you be strengthened in your inner being by the Holy Spirit so that Christ may live there, remodel your life so that he's comfortable in your heart. You might not be comfortable there for a little while. It may take you a little while to get used to the changes, but he's at work in your heart, dwelling there, so that when people come into your life, they say, Christ is comfortable here. Christ lives here. He's the Lord in your heart and your mind, and he's changing. So much so that Paul could say, so that you be rooted and grounded in love. Of course, if Christ comes to remodel, what's the decor? It's who he is. It's, it's self-sacrificing, humble love. And so you be rooted in love. That is to say that everything that comes in gets stuck in this dirt of love and sprouts out the fruit of love. And that you be grounded in love, which means that if you're built upon love, so whatever gets pounded into, built into, onto this foundation of love is a creation of love. Not sappy, superficial love, but real self-sacrificing, humble, even to the point of suffering for love. When we talk about Christ being raised, it means he died, Savior, took the penalty for our sin and broke its power. When it says he rose, the scripture says he rose to newness of life. That's the newness of life. To have this mind that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I pray that you will strengthen me, strengthen us in our inner beings by your spirit so that Christ the risen Christ, the conquering Christ, the saving Christ, the loving Christ, might make his home permanently, obviously, in our hearts, so that everybody who looks in the windows can see the dwelling place of Christ. Thus I pray, that 
we love as he is loved. And we love one another, thus we will stand firm in one spirit. And we will strive together with one mind for the faith of the gospel, not afraid. And in so doing, we will live worthy of the gospel of Christ. This I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. As you do, I remind you that there will be elders available to pray, so please uh, take advantage of that. I'll be in the office area if you have a particular need. I remind you, too, that the response to the benediction is this great Easter Sunday response that Christ is risen, he is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Please receive this as God's benediction. And now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah.